Welcome to the Eastern Star Church where Jesus is exalted and the word is explained. My name is Pastor Jay and you're tuned into the Eastern Star Church and uh, we're having a conversation on how we ought to conquer the cultural climate. And I'm not here by myself. I have some fantastic, brilliant guests with me today. Well, not really guests, but um, I have with me my sister, Minister Nicole Barnes. I have a uh, former health commissioner of New York and Indiana, uh, Dr. Woodrow Myers. And then of course, the senior pastor of Eastern Star Church, Jeffrey Allen Johnson, senior. And uh, we wanted to have a conversation uh, centered around the cultural climate uh, because it's important. And uh, as our members and our friends know, uh, we uh, encourage you and we want to inspire you to live a healthy life and a wholesome life and not just an eternal life in heaven, uh, but also experiencing wholeness here on earth. And one of the ways in which we do that uh, is we hold these conversations dealing with what's going on in the social and the political uh, arenas of our society. And I wanna kinda lay the foundation, the framework of the conversation uh, tonight. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois in uh, his book, The Souls of Black Folk, uh, talk about how black people um, have this double consciousness. Uh, they are both African and American, and it's a tough tension to live between the two in America. Uh, but I wanna kinda add uh, to what Du Bois talked about, this double consciousness, and um, I want to talk about the triple consciousness uh, of that black folks have, not just as African and American, but then also for those of us who are in Christ, saved. So there's this triple consciousness uh, that we have as being African American and believers in Christ Jesus. And so how do we maneuver that in the spiritual way, uh, looking at what's going on in our society today? And so Dr. Myers, I want to kind of start with you to kind of kickstart our conversation today. Um, when you see all that's going on, the different pandemics that we're dealing with, uh, you know, the health pandemic, the race, racial pandemic, the economic pandemic, all of these different things that we're experiencing at the same time, how would you kind of describe the climate of the culture uh, that we're experiencing right now today? Well, thank you very much for the invitation to be here and, uh, and the opportunity uh, to speak uh, with your, your uh, listeners, your viewers online today. Uh, the word I would choose is intensity. Uh, it, it's not as if uh, the political situations that we're dealing with are new. Uh, it's not as if the health crises that we are dealing with today are new. It's not as if uh, the, the, the treatment of, of African Americans uh, in the United States uh, by certain members of society uh, is new. In fact, all of this has been around for decades. Uh, it's been around since I was a boy in Indianapolis, and before that, when my my uh, my father uh, came to uh, Indiana from Kentucky, and when my mother's people came uh, to Vigo County from North Carolina, it's just that all of a sudden it's become far more visible, far more intense, kind of at the same time, uh, in the context of a global pandemic, uh, when people aren't as busy as normal with their usual work lives and. People are spending more time at home and more time with the, their screens. Uh, and the advent of the, the cell phone technology, which has brought uh, with some immediacy uh, uh, crimes that have occurred for, for, for decades and decades and decades to your cell phone immediately so that you can see for yourself what, what happened or what someone thinks has happened. All of that has created an intensity in the culture today that we haven't experienced sort of simultaneously for quite 
sometimes. In fact, in my entire life, I don't remember this level of intensity. And that's what's different. Yeah. Pastor, you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I guess for me, as I look at all of this, and we know I'm in my 50s. And so uh, this is nothing new. Our country in its DNA uh, has this attack against black and brown people from from our onset as a nation, from slavery, from lynchings, uh, to when there were no cell phones and no cameras when people, when black and brown people were being killed. And so this is nothing new for us. And as Christians, as believers, as you bring up being black and uh, being Christian, trying to deal with the times in which we live, I always refer back to the scriptures. I believe in the Bible. I believe the Bible is the authority for the life of the believer and the life of the church. And uh, when you look at Jesus Christ, who God's son came from heaven to earth to address our sin, all of us have sinned, come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. That's from the perspective of God, what Jesus came to do. But why did chief priests, Roman soldiers, Pilate, uh, why did Pharisees, why did people try to kill Jesus? It wasn't because he claimed to be the Christ. There were plenty of people in the first century in Israel who claimed to be the Christ, the son of God. So we know that's, they would have had to kill a whole lot of people to do that. That's not what it was. It was his rebellion, his attack, his addressing systemic issues, political, social, um, economic, religious, corrupt systems that were suppressing and oppressing Hebrew people from the Roman government. And uh, even when you talk about religion in terms of rules and regulations, not necessarily relationship with Christ, as he addressed these systems, economic systems, that were oppressing the poor, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poor. This is nothing new. And Jesus came and said, these systems are messed up. I'm going to show you a new system. I want to talk to you about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the rule, the reign, the government of God is at hand. They didn't kill Jesus because he claimed to be the son of God. They killed him because you're messing with our systems. Our systems are in play and in place. Those of us who are working these systems are benefiting from it. Yes, it's suppressing others, but it's helping us. And they said, we got, we got to get this man out of here. He, he's talking about um, the, the economic injustice. So Jesus says, oh, no, it can't be like this. So a rich man walks up and says, what, what can I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to be saved? He said, well, sell everything you got, give to the poor. He's like, wait a minute, you, you messing with our economic system here a religious system, all these rules and regulations. Jesus started healing on the Sabbath day. And so they're like, but you can't heal on the Sabbath? Well, the scriptures didn't say I couldn't. This is something you put in place to, again, suppress people. Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, but I say unto you, he's addressing those systems. It's like, this. we ain't gonna be, <laughs> and all that influence he had over people and thousands of people listening to him and following him. Here's a man that was healing the sick, Raising the dead. Here's a man that was feeding the hungry. Why would you want to kill him? Because he's messing with our systems that are in place to deal with this. And so they went after Jesus who's saying that 
the kingdom of heaven, there's a new system in play. There's a, there's a new way of dealing with life. And so even as these protests and these marches and people pointing out these political, social, economic, and religious systems that are suppressing and oppressing people, that's why that is that pushback. That's why there is that attack. And I'm so glad to see so many people saying, we're not going to do this anymore in the United States. We're going to address these systems. We're going to transcend these systems. We're going to change these systems. But I just want us to understand, that's why they nailed Jesus to the cross. So don't think you're just going to raise these issues and everybody's going to leave you alone. You're going to be under attack, but it's worth it. That's how we get the benefits we get from Christ. Because Christ says, we're bringing in a new system, the kingdom the rule, the reign, and the government of God is now at hand with us. Yeah. So when you, as you've talked about systems and ways to address that, and Dr. Myers, you brought up how things have been happening, oppression has been happening for generations and generations. We recognize that 2020 is a very important year where we have an opportunity to make an impact on some of these systems. So I would like to hear from any of you um, what, are some ways that we can change these systems, some ways that we can impact these systems, um, particularly, like Jay mentioned, as Christians and as those who feel like we have been oppressed for so long? Well, there are a variety of ways, uh, but I think, uh, especially since you mentioned 2020, the number one way is to vote. Uh, we've got about 118 days or so from today in which uh, America hopefully will take a different direction. Hopefully, America will realize the, the huge mistake that the Electoral College made uh, by putting our current president into office in 2016, and that the America will also remember that it's the House, the Senate, it's governor's offices, it's legislatures, it's all of these other positions that count as well, because those are the people uh, that, that make the day-to-day -day decisions about what to do with tax dollars. Those are the people that make the day-to-day -day decisions about the policies that you and I live under. Uh, and if those people are not doing what it is that we need, uh, then the systems as they exist today will continue to do what they are doing. There are a lot of parallels, I think, between what you uh, talked about, Pastor, with, with respect to the, the, the Romans and the Hebrews uh, and today, uh, uh, wanting the system to continue uh, as it is. I, I think about that when we hear the word essential workers. Uh, who, who are the essential workers? Those are the, the folks that, that have to go out every day irrespective of, of the risks they're expected to, to serve the needs of, of so, many, so many people. And those are disproportionately black and brown people in, in this country. And you hear more and more this notion that you should take the risk. You should go to work. You should, it, in spite of what it might do, we, we need you to do your jobs where Others, it seems to me, are, are not taking those risks. They want the people that are in these designated jobs to, to do it for them. And so I just see that there, there are certain parallels to what happened many, many centuries ago and, and what's happening today. And unless and until we fight uh, those, uh, those, uh, those systemic uh, uh, demands uh, that uh, we do things the way they have always been done, we return to normal, we go to school no matter whatever the risk is. Uh, we continue the society as we've already set it up. Uh, instead of evolving to what it needs to become, uh, then the society is at risk. Yeah, and I, I want to speak to that too because I certainly agree with Dr. Myers in terms of the, po the political process, this registering to vote and to vote when 
the current president became president, then people got out and started protesting the week after that. So you saw a bunch of young people out protesting. How could y'all let him become president? And that's when I just went off saying, trying to help people understand, we don't determine who the president is by protesting. We determine who the president is by voting. So with all these protests and marches that we have now in 2020 uh, uh, concerning uh, systemic racism, concerning police brutality, uh, concerning uh, these systematic uh, racism, well, the way to address that is to register to vote and to vote. The protests and the marches are wonderful. We need those. That's a lot of agitation. And those who are in certain positions, they don't want that agitation. They don't want to see all that. So that's the agitation is important. But the legislation is just as important. Uh, these policies, and in order to change those, we have to register to vote and we have to vote. So great, let's keep this agitation going. That is wonderful. I have, I've, I've been marching since I was 18 years old. So for four decades, I have marched and protest with Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and today all the young people. But the, the, the agitation is only half of it. The legislation is the other part of that. And people talk about, well, this system doesn't work. No, it doesn't work, as Dr. Myers was talking about, for black and brown people. It is working for somebody. That's why they're doing everything they can to perpetuate it and prolong it because it is working. Some are getting rich. Some are holding on to these positions. These policies are not changing. So the system is working for people that don't look like us. It's not working for us. And so in order to change these policies, the legislations, the laws, then we have to become a part of that political political process, register to vote, and then go ahead and vote. So the question is, like, what do you say to those um, cynical-minded people who have no trust in the system? Because like we've been saying, the same thing has been going on for decades at a time, and this isn't the first time people have been protesting. This isn't the first time people have been registering and, and going out to vote, and we've seen that throughout our history but at the same time, we still see oppression. So how, what do you say to, to, that, to that generation of people who are withholding their vote for lack of trust to, to the system, to the, you know, the political individuals who are in those positions? How do we encourage those people who don't have a trust in the voting process to go out and vote? Well, I, I'd say to them, if we keep doing what we're doing, we're gonna keep getting what we're getting. Uh, so if your strategy hasn't worked, of, of not voting hasn't worked for you so far, or hasn't worked for us, why don't you change it? Uh, why, why don't you give voting a, a try? Uh, I, I have seen a sustained uh, effort this time around that I haven't seen since the 60s with respect to people coming together. And it's uh, multiple generations, but it's being led as often as it is by young people. I've seen a, a diversity in the crowds that are that are that are involved in the protesting that that I typically didn't see uh, in the 60s. There were some exceptions, but but that's what's different about today. So let's use this moment. Let's use the fervor that people are feeling today, and let's actually continue the push. Uh, I, I've seen some things change in the in the last couple of months that you know, knock on wood. Uh, I, I don't know 
whether this is the, the beginning of it or the end of it, but I like the fact uh, that, uh, that certain institutions are finally realizing that they have to take a, a, di a different approach. I did not believe that NASCAR would ever eliminate the, the Confederate flag. That was a surprise to me. Now, I, I, well, let's, let's see if it's going to be sustained. Uh, but it's just an example of, I, it wouldn't have happened had the, had the effort been two or three days. It wouldn't have happened uh, if, it, if it hadn't been as long as an intense as it's been. So we keep doing that. And we take it all the way through the election uh, 118 days from now. And we make sure that our vote uh, is felt, it's heard, and that the people that come in after that election uh, want to make that change far more sustained into the future. Yeah, and when people talk about, when, when I hear people talk, oh, voting doesn't make a difference. My vote doesn't make a difference. Well, in, what was it, 1964, 65, the Voting Rights Act, yes. it did make a difference. So you got people like John Lewis, you got people like Julia Carson, our, our homegirl here in our city, and her grandson, Andre Carson. You, and we could just keep, and look at all these black females now who are mayors of these cities and, and uh, the black congresspeople and the black senator. So it, it and the black president of the United States of America, who was the smartest president we've ever had and uh, the one with the most integrity and honesty and credibility, which now we, we see how significant and important that is. Well, that's because people voted. So now in the state of Indiana, we got Woodrow Myers, who's running for the governor of the state of Indiana in a state that's never had a black governor uh, in Indianapolis, the what are we, the 13th, 14th largest city in the nation, never had a black mayor. So if we sit back and do nothing, talking about voting doesn't make it, it doesn't make a difference when you don't vote. We've seen the differences that is made since the 60s when we've been able to vote of what is, it's been able to do. So uh, hopefully that we'll get beyond the agitation. Keep doing that, but get beyond the agitation and understand the importance of being a part of that political process and, and empowering people. Here's what I try to get people to understand. There are people that we voted into office who are for our community, who understand inclusiveness, who understand that it's supposed to be not the disunited States, but the United States and empowering them. Don't, we don't just put somebody in for two years or four years and then, all right, now handle your business. No, empower them once they get in office as they look out for our communities, as well as um, understanding that there are people in office who are not looking out for us. Why do we keep allowing that to happen? So becoming a part of that political process, registering to vote, voting, and as Dr. Woodrow Myers is doing, at some point, some of us need to say, you know what? Maybe I need to run for an office. Maybe if I'm sitting up here talking about it, it doesn't make a difference. Maybe I'm the one that needs to get in there to make a difference. I, I did a series of messages entitled Reluctant Leaders, and I know what that feels like when you want to sit on the sideline and wait on somebody else to go do something, and God is pushing you uh, to go ahead and make something happen. So um, we, we have to understand that until we become a part of this political process, we're gonna keep getting the same thing that we've, we've always gotten. If we're going to make a difference, then we need to make that difference. So, Dr. Myers, Pastor Johnson just said that you're running for governor of the state of Indiana. What made you come to that decision? It, it wasn't something that I had 
dreamed about since a, being a young boy. It wasn't something that, that, that was an intense, single-minded desire of mine. It was a conclusion that after having spent 30-plus uh, years as a physician, as a leader in, in healthcare, as a leader in the community, uh, in the not-for-profit sector, in, in business, uh, that the, the best way to bring all of those talents together and give back to the community that I love so much in the state that I'm from and also love is uh, to throw my name in the ring, to, to give, uh, give uh, the voters a chance to, to give me an opportunity to lead the state as opposed to leading a segment uh, such as, in, as a healthcare CEO or as a healthcare ad administrator. Um, and uh, when I did that almost exactly a year ago, uh, it's when I, uh, when I uh, announced my candidacy for, for office. I had no idea what would happen over, over the year, wh whether I would make it uh, as far as I had. But now, uh, as of two weeks ago, I am the ratified candidate uh, for governor of my home state. I, I will be the only African-American candidate uh, for governor on the ballot in the United States uh, in, in, the, in the coming election, the first uh, African-American to get the nomination for this position in Indiana. And people ask me across the country, well, how, how do you think you can win in a red state? Isn't Indiana one of the, and I, and I point out to the, the, the folks that say that, well, you know, we, we've been cyclical. Uh, Indiana had 16 years of Democratic leadership in the state house, and now it's had its 16 years of Republican leadership. I think it's time to go back the other way. And people forget that Indiana voted for Barack Obama as president in 2008, well, President Obama won 15 of the 92 counties in the state, but he, he decreased the distance in those red counties, so to speak, from 70, 30, 60, 40, down to 55, 45. And he got the votes that he needed to carry Indiana's electoral college votes forward. So it's possible. It is possible in the state of Indiana. Uh, it is uh, certainly something that, that if it is done, it will be historic. Uh, for us as a state and, and for us as a nation. And I, I, I can guarantee the voters one thing. If, if I am given this opportunity, I will spend every day working for them. You know, I, ha I have been, in, in my view, Pastor, enormously successful in, in my life. I, I've, had, I've had opportunities to care for patients. I've had opportunities for leadership. I have a wonderful family. They're doing well. Uh, you know, re retirement for a guy my age is typically what one one would, would, would often do. I, I tried it for a week or so, Pastor, I did. Uh, but it just didn't feel right. It felt as if uh, the, 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 the opportunities that have been given weren't being concentrated and utilized in sort of a final examination of something I could do in my life and my career. So that's what motivated me to say, look, uh, let's give it a shot. Let's do your absolute best. Let's throw your name in the ring. Let's give the voters a choice. We don't have to keep things the way they are today. We can move things forward. We can do things differently if we come together, if we register, and if in November we all get together and decide it's irrespective of the voter suppression that goes on nationwide, including here in the state of Indiana, we can overcome. We can change the trajectory of our state in a very positive way, and we can move Indiana forward in, instead of the, the, the pathway that we're on today. So we definitely thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with us as we are open to talk with anyone who is running. So my question for you is, would you mind sharing with us uh, what are some of your policies that um, you, I read that you have a reform uh, plan and agenda, if you could kind of give us an overview of that and let us know um, what to expect. 
Well, we've, we've issued a number of them, and they're all on our, our, our website, www.drwoodymyers.com. Uh, and we're on all of the various social media sites where we talk about them on a, on a regular basis, the, the Instagram, the, the, the Twitter, and the Facebook. But in criminal justice reform, clearly in the last number of weeks, we've seen, uh, we've, we've seen plenty of evidence that the way we approach our, our system of, 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 of uh, justice today isn't working for a lot of people. Uh, so we've proposed a number of changes. Uh, we've proposed that uh, training for law enforcement be intensified and, and, and to be a lot different than it is today. We've, we've proposed that we eliminate these lethal uh, maneuvers that have choked the life literally and figuratively out of people and out of our community. Uh, we have uh, suggested uh, very strongly that uh, for certain offenses there is no need to put someone in, in jail and in prison. Uh, there are many other ways to get the point across, uh, and it would save us a lot of money at the same time, for instance, uh, decriminalization for simple possession of THC-containing uh, substances. That, that's the active ingredient in, in, in marijuana. Uh, those are the kinds of things that we think just make a lot of common sense that we should do and can do uh, differently uh, in, in our state. And, and if uh, elected, that's exactly the approach that we would take. We would, we would recruit uh, uh, the, the kind of uh, folks that would run for office that, uh, who are going to be prosecutors and judges and so on that, uh, that, would, uh, that would assume those offices, who have a sensibility about them of fairness uh, th throughout uh, uh, our population, not just for parts of our population, and so those are the kind of people that we would put in those positions and on all the many boards and commissions and committees that the state of Indiana appoints. And very importantly, we would make sure that the budget of the state of Indiana goes towards these new policies, that we put our state's money uh, where these policies, uh, in the direction we want these policies to go. And that means we would fund things differently uh, in the future than, than we do today. I have a piggyback onto that. Um, as you immediately mentioned, the criminal justice reform, um, I've been doing a lot of work around um, use of force policy and negotiating with the city. And what I'm recognizing, particularly in Indiana, is that a lot of the um, restrictions come from the state level. So I didn't know if you had any input on that. What do you foresee in regards to not just uh, changing, banning chokeholds and cameras and those things, but accountability, which is what we hear across the country? Accountability is vitally important. And the, the, the two basic ways that a governor makes change are to push and sign legislation that changes the actual law and then to and then to use the bully pulpit and to push in policies uh, with respect to the administration and the people that work for the administration to change the way that we interpret how we should get our work done and the, pro the priorities that, that, uh, that we should make. Uh, and uh, I guarantee you that there would be a spirit of collaboration uh, between state and local government and our administration that, that I don't think exists today to the degree that, that it needs to. Uh, I've talked to, to many sheriffs uh, in, across the uh, state of Indiana, and they are longing for a collaboration that, that they think will, will help them do their, their jobs better. Uh, th th they, they want this community to be safe. I want the community to be safe. That's the priority, public safety. But there are ways to achieve that that are far less lethal, far less aggressive, and far, in the long run, more effective. Uh, than the way we go about it now. And that's what we would do differently in, in our administration. So I, I have a question about the, you talked about the decriminalization of, of THC and for those who are already in prison for 
that crime. What is your What does that look like for your administration to somehow? What does that look like for them to be released once that is, you know, affirmed the decriminalization decriminalization of, of marijuana? What does it look like for those prisoners to come out? Well, the first thing that uh, that I would uh, suggest to you is that uh, we we want to put the correct back in corrections. Uh, we want to give people an opportunity when they have been in prison to be when they're released to reduce almost to zero, if at all possible, the likelihood that they'll ever go back. And that means that we have to have programs in place that'll provide training, that'll provide motivation and healthcare. Uh, because so much of what happens that, that causes people to be convicted is related to substance use disorders and it's related to untreated or undertreated mental illness or people that have been diagnosed with mental illness but haven't taken their medication sometimes because they couldn't afford their, their medication. Some of it is very, very expensive. So all of those are precursors to people being convicted. Now with respect to your actual, your, 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 your question about what to do once people are there with respect to decriminalization, there has to be a negotiation, there has to be a collaboration, there has to be work that's done with the community, with the judges, to make sure that whatever changes and however, whatever changes are made and how quickly they are made, the community both understands, accepts, and we can implement effectively. And what that means to me is that we very carefully identify those individuals who are at least risk to society. Those individuals who have uh, been convicted of, of crimes where the, the amounts have been relatively small, where there's been no violence involved, and those are the people with whom we would work with the parole boards and others to, to, to work uh, with first. Uh, and then we would progress as we would have success. It's not a process that's going to happen overnight, but it is a process that can happen. And other states have done so successfully. So what we would also do is, is, is take advantage of what we can learn from some of the other states. There's no, there's no reason why we can't copy something that's working well elsewhere here in Indiana. And I would have no qualms about that at all. I, I believe in the power of prayer. I believe that when we call on the Lord, he hears us. He answers us, and then he says, and we should glorify his name. But when it talk about prayer, prayer is not just us calling on God, but it's also a part of us being the answer to the prayer. Uh, my mentor, uh, Pastor A. Lewis Patterson, who's in glory now, he used to say, you're not really praying if you're not trying to be a part of the answer to the, the solution to the prayer. So if, if I'm praying... We need to get these policies changed. We need to get some politicians in, the, in these offices. We need to get that changed. If I'm praying that uh, there are people that we need to get in office, we need to get, to get that changed. If I'm not trying to make that happen, then I'm not really praying. And so uh, in, in scripture, and uh, back to what I said earlier, I believe that the Bible is the authority for the life of the believer and the life of the church. In scripture, we see people like the prophet Moses who dealt with the head of state of Egypt. God said, let my people go. Then he went there and did some things to enact that, to help get that done. We see Jesus dealing with Herod and dealing with Pilate and addressing Caesar. And so we see uh, Jesus, our perfect example, helping us to understand that we have to address, we have to be, as so many say now, uh, speaking truth to power. So it's biblical, it's scriptural, it's a part of the authority 
for the life of the church and the believer. And, and we see that happening over and over again in scripture. And the same thing needs to happen in the 21st century. Yes, pray. I believe in prayer. I believe in the power of prayer. I, I never could have made it to where I am had it not been for prayer. Our, as a people, so many of us prayed to get us even to where we are now. But if we're not willing to be a part of that solution, I don't really even know how much of that is prayer. Just sitting back waiting on God to do everything when God has given us the ability and the responsibility to do some of those things ourselves. Yeah. So I, I, I got a question for all three of y'all actually, because this whole triple consciousness is dealing with uh, us as Africans, uh, dealing with us as Americans with the whole aspect of the rights to vote. And then um, of course us being saved. Uh, so the question is, and Nicole, you can get in on this too. Like, what's the realistic role of the church and how can the church kind of partner uh, with those who are voted in to ensure that our people have what it takes to be whole and healthy even here on earth? Yeah, I think um, I'm grateful to be a part of a church who models that already. Um, I think just in messaging in preaching and teaching, lifting up the social justice issues, lifting up the fact that community involvement is important. I think hearing that from the pulpit, and I've heard that for the many years I've been here, that makes me understand that it's okay, that that is a part of my life as a believer. So I think it's important uh, in the preaching and the teaching, and then also just creating opportunities for us to engage. I started, I didn't know a lot about phone banking and those things until I came to Eastern Star Church. I was able to do that through a partnership that we had in the community. So I think as long as we, as long as there is leadership that is open to partnering with those in the community, and we have solid teaching and biblical principles that show us that that is important, I think why not? Yeah, why not? Yeah, the, I, the, I believe that the church has a place in that. Um, as I, I heard uh, one older white pastor and professor say that historically that white pastors have spoken to their community but not spoken for them. His argument was that we can learn from black pastors because not only do they speak to their community, they speak for their community. And so I've, I've lived that out in my life. I've, I've, I'm a graduate of Bishop College in Dallas, Texas, and their whole argument was the community to help you make it, then go back and help that community. And, and that is as a Christian as well. That's as a child of God. And as Nicole was talking about, I feel as a, as a pastor of a church, as a shepherd, that God has called me to lead this ministry, it is to empower people to operate in their spiritual gifts to go and do something for community. Jesus said, I was hungry, you fed me. I was homeless, you found me some adequate housing and that's affordable for me. Uh, Jesus said, I was in prison. You got me some re-entry programs and you helped me to get educated while I was there. So when I come out, I can be acclimated to society. Jesus said, I, I was naked. You found me some adequate clothing. And, he's, and he starts talking about this social piece. We keep wanting to make, 
some of us keep wanting to make Christianity and this relationship with God just about me. And it's not just me personally, but it's also the social peace that the scriptures speak of, that Jesus demonstrated. And, and now as Christians and as the church, we have to be a part. We have to have, as I, as I teach at Eastern Star Church, a, a social expression of our faith. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe God raised Jesus from the dead. I've received him to my in, I would not be who I am had it not been for my faith in Jesus Christ. I got it right personally. Now there has to be a social faith expression. I'm expressing my faith uh, in community, that I'm making sure that people who are hungry, that they have some healthy food options for themselves and their children and their families, that people who are homeless, that, they, that we got them on a path to ownership of a home or at least living in an apartment that's worth living in. And so dealing with, with, the, with, with the criminal justice system, all of that comes from my faith, but it is a, a social expression and me empowering other people to be able to do the same thing. And I believe that the church, that that is, and not just the black church, the church period, people who claim to be Christians and children of God. But it also goes back, as Nicole was talking about, to what we preach and teach. Because some of the stuff we hear preached and taught doesn't line up with what the scriptures say. And you, if you know the truth, then the truth will set you free. Well, if truth sets free, then lies put you in a bind. And then lies put you in bondage. And the enemy has this these perpetual lies that put people in bondage. And it's the church and our understanding of the truth of God's word that is going to set people free, and not just personally, but in a social context. One of my first examples uh, uh, in early in life with respect to the church and, and politics was, uh, I don't know if you've ever met it, Reverend James L. Cummins, uh, Trinity CME Church on Martindale Avenue, was pastor uh, at the, at, that was my home church. Uh, he was uh, very active in the city council in Indianapolis way back in the day, and he invited in one Sunday uh, Senator Birchby uh, to to sit with the uh, congregation. The first time I had ever seen a a, a white male in the uh, in the Trinity CME Church, and that that I remember even to this day. That had to have been what 55, 60 years ago, uh, because it was such an important and, and 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 memorable sight for me. And understanding now, looking back at how Reverend Cummins was involved and how he wanted the congregation to be involved and wanted us to, to participate and to move forward. Uh, that was meaningful. Uh, and so clearly uh, there are many such examples. That's just one that, that I happen to remember and uh, one that uh, I still today talk about. Yeah, so, so Dr. Myers, I mean, we're going to be honest. There are going to be some black folks out there that's going to vote for you because you're a black man, want to make history in the state of Indiana, across this country. And let's say you get elected, how do we as um, citizens of America like keep our, keep, hold our um, elected officials accountable? Like we, we, we talk about voting the election day, but we know that political social engagement goes beyond the election day. So what are some ways in which we can hold our uh, elected officials accountable once we give them their vote and put them in office. Well, telling truth to power, as we heard uh, earlier, is, uh, is clearly uh, one mechanism. 
uh, having people uh, enforce their their uh, their uh, commitment to communication. Uh, you know, I, I would fully expect that uh, there will be uh, uh, a number of forums to which I will be invited, many of which I hope I will be able to accept, where uh, similar to what uh, Pastor did for me when I first entered this uh, campaign, uh, inviting me to meet with uh, young people uh, that were involved with this church. Uh, to this day, I remember the lessons uh, that I learned uh, in, in that forum, and I've tried to apply them uh, in my campaign. Uh, but I would hope that that would continue, not just at Eastern Star, but at other, other churches as well. If you, if you stay in your office, uh, it, wherever it is, in the, in the State House or the City County Building or wherever, uh, you're going to miss out on opportunities to learn. You're gonna miss out on opportunities to determine whether the policies that you put in place are actually working and, and miss out on opportunities to improve them. So uh, my goal will be to get out as often as possible to bring in as many as possible in order for that, those lines of communication to remain open and that dialogue to continue. I, and I know that this, this, Pastor Jay, I know this is your thing, and Nicole, I know this is y'all, y'all talking to Dr. Myers and I, but as, as young people in America, in the state of Indiana, Indianapolis, and uh, serving in Arlington Woods and understanding community, what is the message from just personally that you have for people like Dr. Myers who are running for office and others who are already in office? What, is, what do you hear among your peers? What is it that's in your heart? What do you want elected officials to know? that once they're in office, here's, here's what we're trying to see. Here's what we see that we need as young people in America and we believe it's going to benefit all of America or young people in Indiana. It's going to benefit all of Indiana. What are, what are y'all hearing? And then personally, what, what do you all want elected officials to know and to do? And, I'm, and I know I'm flipping this. Y'all supposed to be asking us. I know that. And I apologize to y'all later. But... No, I mean, I think, for one, uh, you asked what, what of our peers are saying. I just think, again, just a distrust or mistrust uh, with, with the system, with those who are elected. Um, I think a lot of times uh, we have this mindset that those who are elected into office have a hidden agenda uh, where, you know, the people that elected them in office, they are all about the people during the campaign, and then once they get elected, they forget about those who put them in office. Um, and so I feel like, you know, uh, myself and my peers were like somebody who's elected to have a heart for the people, uh, to have a heart for the community who puts them in office, to have a heart for uh, uh, the community who's, who historically, as we've been talking about, have been overlooked. And so um, I think that's a part of it. And I think one of the ways in which, you know, we can kind of rebuild that trust or build that trust from the ground up is, um, like you said, just be present, coming out of the office and uh, uh, being a part of the community, being a part of what's going on and uh, so that we can see your face. I think a lot of times, uh, you know, the political, um, th those who are elected into office, we see them a lot at church, like right before the election day, <laughs> and then we don't see them no more until the next time they up for office. So just being able to show your face, saying thank you to those who elected you and, uh, letting us know and reminding us of the work that you're doing on our behalf. Yeah, I agree with everything that Pastor Jay said. And I would just also add, for me, I would like to see funding in our community. Um, 
I grew up in IPS and I've seen what has happened to IPS because of allocation of funds and et cetera. So with not just voting being important, but also the census, and I'll get to that with you in just a second, but I, I personally just, what I'm hearing is we don't wanna be defeated anymore. Like we put our hopes in somebody, we listen to these promises every two to four years and we say, especially as Christians, we say, okay, we're gonna have some faith as hard as it's gonna be. And then we get disappointed over and over and over again. And we get excuses as to why we're at the bottom of lists, why we have to beg for streets to be paid, why we have to beg for hot meals in schools, why we have to beg for textbooks. So I, my hope is that whoever is in office, don't let us down, don't ignore us. <laughs> and the reality is, especially with the climate we're in, we are getting more and more educated. We don't got nothing but time to sit on these screens and look stuff up. So people are becoming more familiar with what the process is. And I believe that, you know, folks are, are tired and people will continue to express their disappointment if we do not see the promises that are being made to us prior to our vote. I agree with all, all that you've, uh, you've outlined, and that reminds me, I, you know, I grew up in 46218, uh, which is where a lot of the, uh, the community is, uh, angst and issues are t today. Uh, I grew up in uh, the Indianapolis Public Schools, uh, 56, 74, 80, and Shortridge, uh, Shortridge High School, Shortridge Blue Devils. So uh, I, I am one of the, 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 those who has experienced this community in many of its, uh, its dimensions, and I understand the, uh, the, the angst uh, of being at the bottom of the list. Uh, you know, what, what happens when a sports team uh, is at the bottom of the list? What, what happens when, when the Colts were, were at the bottom of the list? For so they, they change coaches. Indiana needs a new coach. Uh, and that's why I'm running to, literally and figuratively to, re, to coach this state in, in a different direction. Uh, because uh, if, if we keep doing what we're doing, we keep electing the people that we're electing, we're going to stay where we are at the bottom of those lists. And it's time for us to change. It's time for us to go out and win a Super Bowl uh, with respect to all of these issues and concerns and policies that we have. Um, thank you for that answer. I want to also ask you about uh, 2020 is also an important year because of the census. And we see that uh, right now, Indiana self-reporting is about 66%, which is better than the 60% we had 10 years ago. Um, can you connect for us the importance between the census and voting and how that matters with Pastor Jay talking about post-election, um, the impact of completing the census and what that does in regards to the economic development and the things you mentioned earlier. There, there, thank you for that. There are just so many touch points. When, if the census is done appropriately, if everybody participates and we get our full numbers, then that's how, how uh, it's determined how many congressional seats you have. Each time you lose a congressional seat, you lose power uh, with respect to the United States government and with respect to federal funding. Each time you gain a seat, you gain power, you gain funding. So having a count that represents everyone is a way for us to make sure that we're getting the dollars as a state that we deserve out of the federal budget. But, but, but equally as importantly, if not more importantly, is that the census is then utilized to determine voting districts 
Uh, there's this phenomenon called gerrymandering. That's when districts look very, very funny. And like, why, why do you cross one street and you're in one district and another, another, and then two blocks down, you're in a third? Because people have very sophisticated computer models today that they use in order to maximize the number of their voters in a given district. And, the, and those models have become very precise. And that's why uh, in Indiana, you see these weird-looking districts for both Congress uh, and for uh, the, um, the legislature uh, because those models were approved by the legislature. They were then signed into law uh, by the governor, and that's how they, we now have these supermajorities uh, of Republican leadership in the House and the Senate in, in Indiana. And they maintain power by controlling those districts, which are then based upon the census. So whoever is a governor in Indiana in 2021 will have the final word uh, on those districts. So I ask the voters to decide who do they want uh, influencing and, and, and making those final decisions. Uh, if, if, if you want the current team, they will be happy to continue to do what they're doing, which is to limit uh, the, the opportunity that we have to express our opinion, to get our votes across, and to have uh, the, uh, the power that we should have uh, muted, they will continue to do that. Okay, we got about five minutes left uh, before Pastor P will be on our Instagram Live for Teen Church Bible Study. And so we want to give our people time to transition from Facebook and YouTube to Instagram. Uh, so before we leave today, uh, I want to give each of you kind of a, a last word uh, Pastor Johnson, I want to give, I want to have you give a word of encouragement uh, to to people in times of this pandemic, COVID nineteen, social injustice, personal issues, all that's going on. And then, Dr. Myers, I, I want to give you a last word to just encourage people to step out and vote, to be engaged, to be uh, more aware of what's going on socially and politically. So, what kind of last word here. Well, first, let me say a thank you to Dr. Myers for coming to our main location here in Arlington Woods. Uh, and we're, we're doing everything we can to build this community up, to enhance this community. And uh, the generosity and heart and the, the hard work of our members and our friends are really making a difference over here. So thank you for hanging out with us today. Thank you, uh, uh, Jay Allen and Nicole. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so excited about what God, I've known both of you for a very long time. And uh, to see you moving in a direction uh, to be used by God, it means a lot uh, as, as I try to pour my life uh, into the ministry and the work of God. Um, Jesus said, I was hungry, you fed me. I was outdoors, you found me housing. I was in prison and you helped me with reentry. That I, I was sick and you found me affordable health care despite the fact that I had a pre-existing condition. When Jesus started saying that, the disciples said, when did we see you like that? He said, when you've done it to the least, the lonely and the left out, you've done it to me. So when we are doing these things in community and in society, it's not just doing it for Jesus. It's actually doing it to Jesus. It is a Jesus, uh, he identifies with the marginalized. He identifies with the poor. He identifies with the outcast. And when we come along to help those types of persons, it's not just for Jesus, it's to Jesus. And so when we look at this pandemic, when we look at the unemployment, when we look at the social injustice, we look at uh, the systemic racism and all of that, and some of us look at that and go, man, these obstacles, there's nothing I can do. They're not just obstacles, they're opportunities. It's an opportunity for me to bless and help people, and it's an opportunity 
for me to do for Jesus and for me to do to Jesus. And so I want to encourage people during this season, even when you are hurting and struggling, you can still help people who are hurting and struggling. And you always reap what you sow. When you bless others, that comes back on you. And Jesus has given us that salvation we talked about, his Holy Spirit. And now so many opportunities. I was hungry. I was sick. I was in prison. I was put down because of my race. This is all these opportunities. And now this is a chance for us with our relationship and our faith in God to be a blessing to others for Jesus and to Jesus. And it always comes back to help us to be uh, the Christians that God wants us to be. So be encouraged. Do your thing. Keep washing your hands. Keep using your hand sanitizer. Keep your mask on. Stay six feet away from everybody. And, uh, and have your business. God is not through with us. God is working all things together for good. Well, th this is an opportunity. Thank you for that, Pastor. And this, this is very much a, an opportunity to be with you uh, today. People ask me all the time, well, you, what do you mind? You're a doctor. Why is it that you are doing this? Why, why don't you just keep being a doctor, keep doing those things that you were trained to do? I went to medical school for four years. I got certified in internal medicine. I did a critical care ICU fellowship. Uh, but I learned very, very early on in my medical uh, life and as a doctor that, that health care is connected to jobs and education. Health care is connected uh, to everything. Uh, and if you want people to have better health outcomes, uh, you better do something about K-12 through education so that kids can get good jobs. If, because if they get good jobs, they can get good health insurance. And if they get good health insurance, they can be seen when they need to be seen. They can afford the medication. It's too expensive. We want to bring that cost down. But those are the things that connect us together. Jobs, education, and health care. So if I want you to have better health outcomes, uh, then becoming governor allows me to connect all of those dots. And that's what, and that's what I want to do. And I, and I tell the, the, my younger friends you know, that, that, that are out and, and shouting every day, Black Lives Matter. And I say, yeah, they do. Uh, so if black lives really matter, then become a doctor. <laughs> Save some of them. <laughs> let's, let's, let's stop black deaths uh, so that we can continue to enjoy these lives. And, and, and lives of, of all people, everybody wants the same thing, irrespective of if you're black, you're brown, or you're white. Everybody really wants their kids to do better. They want good opportunities for, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what we need to encourage across the board here in the state of Indiana. And that's what I want to do uh, as, the, as, the next, as the next governor of the state. Well, that's awesome. And thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to you, Pastor Johnson, uh, for opening up this uh, platform to allow us uh, to speak to this. And thank you to you, Minister Nicole Barnes, you. Uh, for your me. participation. And thank you all for our tuning in to the Eastern Star Church where Jesus is exalted and the word is explained. Make sure you tune in to our Instagram page right now where Pastor P is having a Bible study for our teenagers. So make sure you grab all your teens, your nephews, your cousins, tell them to go over to Instagram, follow Eastern Star Church. And we want to say thank you for all your support and generosity during this time as well. And uh, we'll see you Sunday. God bless.